The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Alex Wisner-Gross, who is the President and Chief Scientist at Gemini and Fellow at the Harvard Institute for Applied Computational Science. Hello, Alex. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Alex, and thanks for joining us today. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing. Sure. So my general sort of attack on life is to try to maximize future freedom of action. So I wear a number of hats, consequently. On the industrial side, I run a company called Gemity based in Boston, where I serve as president and chief scientist, and our focus is artificial general intelligence. I also have a number of academic appointments. I serve as a fellow at the Harvard Institute for Applied Computational Science. I'm also a research affiliate at the MIT Media Laboratory. I'm also an expert in residence at the Harvard Innovation Lab. I help to run MIT's Alumni Angel Investment Group, the MIT Angel Alumni of Boston. I advise a number of government agencies, the Defense Science Board, national labs. So I wear a number of hats. My sort of general thematic interest is general artificial intelligence and ensuring that the benefits of AI are evenly distributed throughout the economy. Well, great. Well, that's awesome. And speaking as a former MIT alum, I may have actually gotten a call from the Angel Group. I think it's great what you guys are working on. So one of the things that you've written about and you talked about recently is that data sets, not algorithms, might be the limiting factor to development of human-level artificial intelligence. What you've talked to about and what others talk about is artificial general intelligence and AGI. So on recent podcasts, we've had folks on both ends of the spectrum in terms of the importance of data and the necessity of increasing levels of data to get there. So can you explain Explain to our listeners what you mean and how you're referring specifically to our need for these data sets. Absolutely. So a few years ago, I started thinking about major limiting factors to progress in artificial intelligence and sort of a very traditional take on that question, given that in a certain sense, the field of modern AI goes back to the mid to late 1950s, where the idea that, say, computer vision would be as simple and straightforward as a single intern's summer challenge to solve. It took more than half a century to solve some of these foundational sort of grand challenges in AI, including but not limited to computer vision. So I started asking myself a few years ago, what was really the limiting factor? And and this also stemmed from some of my work in artificial general intelligence, trying to understand the nature of intelligence. And once you have, I think, a satisfactory definition for what intelligence is or might be, it's very natural to ask how we accelerate the onset of more advanced forms of intelligence. So I started looking at a number of key advances in AI over the past 30 years ranging from spontaneous speech recognition, natural language processing challenges like playing Jeopardy, playing chess, a number of other challenges. And I found a really interesting pattern uh, that I published as an essay a couple of years back with sort of the key insight that of the three natural suspects to look at for limiting factors for the onset of solutions to major AI grant challenges, such as those problems that I mentioned, algorithms tend to get most of the attention. Like to say, no one ever got tenure off of publishing a new data set. It's, it's really algorithms that get most of the glory in the AI community. 
But algorithms are just one of three sort of classes of general candidates for limiting factors for AI advances. The, the other two classes, I would say, are training data sets and training environments uh, would be the second class. And the third is raw computational resources. So that's sort of the Moore's Law bucket. And interestingly, even though algorithms and Moore's Law computational advances get most of the attention, it was data sets that if you sort of look at the timelines of when algorithms that ultimately were used to solve some of these grant challenges came online versus when data sets came online, it was a really striking pattern that there was almost an order of magnitude difference in the time of availability between the algorithm being developed that ultimately solved the AI grant challenge and the data set solving the grand challenges. In some cases, the data sets that were used to train the AI that addressed some of these grand challenges was literally available only a year or two before the challenge was addressed. So it's very natural to ask the question, perhaps data sets are underappreciated as a limiting factor for grand challenges in AI. And it's also natural to, to conjecture then, data sets are underappreciated, not just data sets specifically. Uh, we often distinguish between supervised learning in our artificial intelligence, meaning there are correct answers to the questions or correct labels or correct classifications to any given set of inputs versus sort of more unsupervised or reinforcement learning environments where either there aren't correct answers to any given question or correct classifications or where the entire AI challenge is posed around putting an agent inside an environment. And for those types of situations, we focus on training environments as opposed to training data sets. But it's very natural to speculate that perhaps if we wanted to accelerate the progress of artificial intelligence by up to an order of magnitude, perhaps we need a stronger focus as a community on curating data sets or training environments and organizing competitions and communities around the training data sets and training environments. So I spend a fair amount of my time now thinking about ways to achieve further grand challenges in AI by organizing such data sets and competitions. And I've seen, even over the past two years, a lot of progress in the community in that direction of, for the first time, you know, recognizing for any given enterprise or organization, if you have a grand challenge, you're not necessarily going to be able to find the optimal solution to that challenge by focusing on in-house competitors or candidate solutions to the problem. And I think a very positive trend that I see is this general pattern of externalizing data sets that correspond to key AI grand challenges and allowing outside companies to compete to provide the best solution to your internal AI grand challenge. Yeah, that's really interesting and an interesting thing to look at. So focus on better data sets and have competitions right. on that. Even though algorithms are, you know, what you said, were a little sexier to look at and to get tenured on than coming up with better data sets. Exactly. And often it's the case, it's sort of philosophically interesting, the thought that perhaps algorithms are just sort of sitting around in some cases, such as with computer vision, which arguably was solved by Jan LeCun's convolutional networks algorithm, literally sort of sitting around underappreciated for 30 years until the ImageNet competition run out of Stanford was able to call the entire AI community's attention to convolutional networks and derivative approaches and really focus the community on a class of solutions that were ultimately, as of the past two years or so, able to achieve superhuman performance computer vision tasks. So, you know, following up with this, we've heard one of your TED Talks, and you mentioned that there's a formula for intelligence. So for the lay people, can you explain what you mean by this? Absolutely. So 
I've spent the, the past decade or so going back to grad school. So my PhD is in physics with a particular focus on the intersection of the world of physics and the world of computer science. And going back to my PhD, I devoted a lot of time and, and effort to thinking about the nature of intelligence and the physics of intelligence. And in particular, I think it's sort of an interesting thought experiment to ask whether we could perhaps accelerate the onset of superintelligence, machines that are able to think more quickly, more qualitatively higher thoughts than humans can by trying to understand the phenomenology or the physics of intelligence, as opposed to trying to understand the mechanism of intelligence. And I think a really powerful analogy in that space, I like the quote by Edgar Dijkstra, famous sort of founding father of modern computer science, who once said, the question of whether machines can think is about as relevant as the question of whether submarines can swim. And I think if you, by analogy, say, look at how many centuries it took humanity to achieve artificial powered flight, when instead of perhaps building contraptions for centuries that were naively copying the mechanism of bird flight through, say, flapping, if instead we had focused on understanding the fundamental physics of flight, understanding concepts of lift and drag and thrust and weight. Arguably, we might have achieved powered flight, we might have achieved airplanes centuries earlier than we ultimately did. And so I, it's natural to ask, does that sort of analogy hold with building intelligent machines as well? It's instead of sort of slavishly trying to copy the mechanism of thought and intelligence in human brains, the biology associated with that, what if instead we were to try to pin down the sort of the physical equivalence for intelligence of thrust and, and lift? And once we defined these physical parameters of intelligence to then focus ourselves on optimizing them in sort of clean room fashion that's independent of particular biological implementations of the process of intelligence. So that's what I set about doing over the past decade. And I think a major step in the right direction was pinning down uh, for the first time a physical rule or physical process that was able to reproduce key animal intelligence tests all off of a very simple principle. So the, the principle that we came up with, and this was published in 2013 in the Journal of Physical Review Letters, is to treat intelligence as a physical process that tries to maximize future freedom of action. And that's, I think, a really simple really parsimonious concept. You can write a single equation for it. You can put the equation in only a few symbols on a t-shirt if you want. And yet this very simple equation, when applied to agents dropped in a variety of environments, is able to reproduce a number of key behaviors seen in the animal kingdom in the field of ethology, which studies animal behavior. It's able to, in a simulated financial environment, earn money trading stocks. It's able to play computer games. And in general, without having to tailor its goals to any particular environment in which it's placed, it is able to demonstrate some really intriguing, remarkable behavior. So I really think this is the foundation for a new type of approach to intelligence that rather than, again, focusing on narrow solutions to, say, solving particular computer games or solving, say, board games, this is sort of a first principles intrinsic motivation approach to artificial intelligence that focuses on understanding foundationally what is the nature of intelligence and why does it behave the way that it does. So my conjecture is that at the end of the day, the 
idea that processes that try to maximize future freedom of action and that try to avoid getting trapped are going to be viewed as the fundamental physical process of what intelligence systems actually are. This is, this is really interesting. I made a note here for it. This is it's a definitely more concrete definition of intelligence. We actually struggled with this a little bit as well because we've written a couple of pieces. One, automation is not intelligence. We've made some claims there. And, and we've had an interesting podcast previously with MIT professor Luis Perez Breva, who is making some arguments that a lot of what people are doing with machine learning right now aren't really AI. There's just experiments and data science. Nothing, anything wrong with that. <laughs> Mainly because of the outcomes are not really leading to things that are more intelligent. But of course, that begs the question, like, well, what do we mean by intelligence? And can you really define it clearly? And so just to make sure I understand, so the way that you're defining it and the way that I think you've explained the TED Talk was that intelligence is a process that maximizes the future freedom of action. As you mentioned, avoiding getting trapped. I, I also paraphrase it as intelligence is a process to optimize, that aims to maximize the options of future outcomes. I don't know if that's a good summarization as well, but I just want to make sure just for the purpose of this podcast, we understand it and communicating that clearly. That's right. Uh, yeah, those are all another good way of capturing it is AI is the process of keeping options open. Uh, and I think these are all sort of beautiful foundations for defining intelligence in part because unlike some definitions that say rely on particular reward structures, like AI is, some would perhaps define AI as any system or that is especially good at achieving rewards in a given environment. Some would define AI as systems that are very good at learning their environment. I, I think these are all too narrow as definitions because our Arguably, and this is, I think, going to be a very fruitful area of research over the next decade or two, mm -hmm. arguably, intelligence needs to be able to operate in environments without explicit rewards, and intelligence needs to be able to operate in environments where the nature of learning is conceivably very different. Arguably, intelligence is much more than just learning and much more than just reinforcement learning. Yeah, well, one of the things we wrote about in our newsletter was that it's hard to even identify the boundary of intelligence in biological organisms. We, we sort of went down the <laughs> the evolutionary path, like you know, our bacteria can do. People consider bacteria to be intelligent if they are intelligent. You know, our enzymes intelligent. You know, our molecules intelligent. Our proteins intelligent. And and it's it's hard. It's hard to split because because you have to say, well, is there intentionality? Is there you know? And like, well, maybe bacteria and viruses are intelligent. I'm kind of wondering if you looked at. I know you're not trying to compare with biological comparisons because you make a really good point about, you know, do submarines swim? I love that. But have you thought about, you know, that even in our real world here, like have we, at what point did evolution reach us to the point of intelligence and not just a collection of, you know, molecules swimming in a, in a hot soup? Right. So one analogy that I really like would tribute to Richard Dawkins from his now famous book, The Selfish Gene, where he, uh, for the first time, I think articulates a really intriguing concept that in the world around us, there are two types of systems that are stable. You have systems that achieve stability by making lots of copies of themselves, or he calls them replicators. So this would be sort of traditional biological replication. You achieve stability by recruiting all of these physical resources, atoms around you to make lots of copies of your the second type of stability that he identifies, he doesn't have a real name for it, but it's this idea of stability through permanence. So if you're able to, just as a singleton object in the universe, persist for a very long period of time, that's a second form of stability. And I think intelligence really realizes that form of stability, that an intelligence system is able to adapt 
to changes that's an environment and through those adaptations survive. So another way of looking at it is this notion of a cognitive adaptive niche that was popularized by Steven Pinker. So this sort of framework, biological evolution is very good at adapting to environmental changes that happen time scales much longer than the reproduction time. So if you have bacteria sitting in a petri dish, if you slowly vary the petri dish environment, on timescales much longer than the timescale for bacteria to make copies of themselves, one might reasonably expect the bacteria to be able to successfully adapt to those environmental changes. But if you vary the environmental conditions on timescales much shorter than reproduction time, then natural evolution can't adapt in time. And that leaves a sort of white space or gap in the adaptation space that Stephen Pinker and others have called the cognitive adaptive niche that can only be filled by organisms that have the ability to internally simulate by whatever mechanism, but probably through thinking and imagination, internally simulate possible ways the environment can adapt so that instead of having to rely on lots of copies of themselves with different qualities such that some of them survive uh, after the environment changes, instead, you can run through lots of scenarios internally inside your own mental simulation and thereby survive because your mental simulation ends up being much faster than the outside physical world. So that I think is sort of a natural way of viewing this formulation of intelligence, the idea that in order to survive without having to make lots of copies of yourself and, and having only some copies of yourself survive in a dynamic environment, instead run internal mental simulations, lots of them, of different ways your environments can evolve and thereby all of that natural selection and pruning can happen purely within your own cognition and that's how you achieve survival and that's also how you maximize future freedom of action. Yeah, that's interesting. I really like that. So you know, from this definition, if I can understand properly, if the bacteria is not adapting to its surroundings by coming up with these internal simulations, as you put it, and making decisions about what it should do, they're just adapting in the course of natural selection, then there's really no intelligence there. That's just sort of the external forces causing this response. But if the organism can think about and plan for future action, and so some of them survive just because they've thought through it better and they planned better, in other ones, don't survive because they didn't think about it or plan it better, then that's a sign of intelligence because there's like, I guess it's really more about individual action than it is about sort of the collective response. Is that a fair way of putting it? The way I would frame it is I think collectives can be intelligent as well, but according to this definition of intelligence for the collective or the individual to be intelligent, it will have to be capable of successfully anticipating and maximizing its future freedom of action in a variety of different environmental conditions. And so maybe another way of thinking about it is is that the evolutionary process as a whole has some features of intelligence. It certainly has the feature of maximizing future freedom of action, but not individuals, generically speaking, subject to the evolutionary process. Perhaps the evolutionary process overall, if you look at all of the populations that are subject to it, has that property. But the only entities that we're aware of, other than sort of the entire ecosystem subject to natural selection, would be individuals in the cognitive adaptive niche that have the cognitive abilities to mentally simulate possible future evolutions of their space and thereby adapt to them. Okay, great. Yeah, this has been a very insightful conversation about intelligence and how to break it down. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its applications to corporations and beyond? I'm very bullish that major grand challenges in AI will be addressed over the next five to 10 years. I think a lot of energy on the enterprise side gets spent on narrow intelligence, artificial narrow intelligence problems like classification. And that's, that is obviously the lowest hanging fruit for intelligence. But I think in the future, true differentiation is going to come from 
building in more general forms of intelligence that will have the ability to, say, operate in partially observable environments. Often it's the case that you don't have available all of the information about the world in which you operate, and more advanced forms of intelligence and more general forms will need to be able to successfully pursue their objectives when the aspects of their world that they're able to sense are only partially observable. And I think there are a number of other challenges in addition to succeeding with partially observable state that will be achieved over the next five to 10 years, like the ability to operate in continuous action spaces, which will, I think, lead to revolutions in robotics, the ability to successfully predict evolutions with long-term time horizons. And we're starting to see the beginnings of that right now with video prediction and image extrapolation. But I think the impact on enterprise is going to be absolutely extraordinary when any enterprise is empowered to take time series data or to take image or video or other multimedia data and successfully and plausibly and realistically extrapolate those data out to the future. I think it's going to revolutionize prize forecasting along a variety of different dimensions. And then we get to other advances that one might expect over the next half decade to decade, the ability to have enterprise strategy informed by general intelligence that's able to model a variety of different radical changes in the enterprise environment and anticipate them. I think we'll be enormously powerful. And in some sense, and I've spoken about this in the past, corporations are in many ways the sort of prototype for general intelligences. When you think about corporate personhood, when you think about the fact that most corporations are effectively superorganisms that are composed of many smaller intelligences trying to achieve a more challenging goal than any individual might be able to achieve on his or her own, I think in many ways the future of corporations themselves is to start to look more and more like artificial intelligences that blend humans and machines together. And then I think ultimately the sort of the final grand challenge to be achieved in enterprise artificial general intelligence is building AIs that are able to successfully and harmoniously maximize future freedom of action. That the goal of any capitalist is to maximize real wealth through investment of capital. And it's very natural to ask, well, so what is real wealth? If you're a physicist and you ask a microeconomist what is real wealth, you're likely to hear an answer involving some linear combination of labor currency, natural resources, a few other factors. But that shouldn't be, I think, really satisfying. I, ideally, we would have a physically rigorous definition of real wealth that would be formulated in physically absolute terms like kilograms or meters or seconds. And I think in terms of sort of rigorously and information theoretically defining what real wealth is, those physically absolute units have been missing. And I think using frameworks such as my future freedom of action framework to pin down rigorous definitions of what real wealth is, I think will be absolutely essential for enterprise planning in future, in part because if the goal of the enterprise, if the utility function of the enterprise is to maximize future freedom of action, that is for the first time something that we can measure in physically satisfying units. It's something that we can calculate it's something that we can optimize. And I think at the end of the day, having enterprises that are able to, in rigorous fashion, maximize real wealth, not just over short timescales, not on a quarterly timescale, but on the ultra long timescales of years and decades, I think that's going to be incredibly powerful and ultimately going to be the long-term solution for sustained economic growth. Yeah. Well, this is great. You actually tapped into a whole bunch of topics that I think yeah. will serve as an entire podcast of their own. You talked a little bit about emergent <laughs> behavior in enterprises. We've talked a little about that. At like what point can enterprise be sort of an intelligent organism? We talked a little bit about the future of wealth. So yeah, I think we're going to have to have you come back a few more times as guests on our podcast, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> My pleasure. Well, great. Well, you know, definitely want to thank you for joining us on this podcast. I think our listeners 
listeners are going to find this incredibly valuable. So once again, I really appreciate you joining us on this podcast, Alex. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much. And listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. We'll also post a link to Alex's TED Talk where he goes into a little bit more detail about his intelligence formula, and he also spells it out. I think you guys might enjoy that as well. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Fiverr.com. Fiverr is a marketplace for creative and digital freelance services. And in fact, I use Fiverr for quite a lot of the things that we do here at Cognolytica and AI Today, including the editing of this podcast, the generation of transcripts, and more. I definitely encourage you to take a look at using Fiverr for your creative and digital needs today. And I have a special offer for you today. Use the promo code AI Today for 15% off your first purchase on Fiverr.com. Offer valid until December 31st, 2018. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright 2018 by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.